Colossians chapter 1. We started Colossians last week. If you weren't here last week, please get a copy of the message. We laid the foundation. We talked about why the book of Colossians uh, exists, why Paul wrote it. We talked about the preeminence of Christ, what the book is about. It's a very important message. If you weren't here last week, please pick up the CD as you leave, or you can go to the website and listen to it. Something else exciting, uh, technologically speaking, is we're now podcasting. So you can go to iTunes, that little Mac site, and you can find our listing there, and you can sign up. And every Sunday afternoon, you will get that Sunday's message automatically sent to your computer and then downloaded to your iPod. And so there it is. You don't have to get CDs, and we can save some more money that way. But please, one way or another, get last week's message concerning the introduction to the book of Colossians. Today's message is called The Marks of a Powerful Church. The Marks of a Powerful Church. And we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8. In the original Greek, it's one long sentence, and it reads that way in the New American Standard as well. Starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul and Timothy write, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Lord, today teach us about these things. Teach us about love in the Spirit. Teach us about the hope laid up for us in heaven. Teach us about faith, praying always for others, giving thanks to you. Lord, uh, we would confess before you that we are an egocentric people. We're just so absorbed in our own lives and in our own stuff. Jesus, we'd ask today that you'd free us of ourselves that you would give us a kingdom vision, that we would begin to see your kingdom in its supremacy and that we would place it in first place in our lives and that we would begin to view others as more important than ourselves and we lay down our lives for them. Lord, these are not natural things. These are supernatural. And so we need your Holy Spirit to come and work a work of God in us. Lord, right now I would commit my thoughts to you in my mouth, and I'd ask that every word that comes from these lips would be directly from your throne. You're the one that we need to hear from. Lord, speak to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice in those verses that Paul immediately begins to wade into deep theological water here. Within those five verses, we see that he mentions the whole Trinity. In verse 3, he mentions God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he mentions the Spirit. So we see Paul very early on in the letter putting forth the idea of the Trinity. Now, this is why it's significant. You'll remember from last week's study that Paul wrote this letter or this epistle in response to the report from Epaphras the report that there were some false ideas floating around about Jesus Christ in the community of Colossae and in the Lycus Valley there, Church of Laodicea and Heropolis also being there. There are false ideas about Jesus floating around and they're beginning to creep into the church. And so Epaphras made the 1,000-mile journey 
from Colossae to Rome to visit Paul in prison and let him know and solicit his help. And so Paul writes this letter back to the church in Colossae to affirm true doctrine about Jesus Christ. And immediately here in the introduction, he begins to assert the deity of Jesus Christ. Because one of the false teachings that were floating around was that Jesus was merely a creature, he was created, and he was only related to God by creation rather than by eternal relationship. And now we have the same false ideas about Jesus floating around in our community today. There's a prevalent population of Jehovah's Witnesses that teach Jesus was a God, not the God. And then the Mormons that also teach Jesus was created instead of who is the creator of all things. So it's very important for us to realize true doctrine about Jesus Christ. Paul begins to assert it immediately, asserting the deity of Jesus Christ. And so when he says in verse 3, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is a declaration and an assertion of his deity. How do you mean? The sharp mind says, wait a minute. How does merely saying or stating that God is a father of Jesus Christ equate to a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ? Aren't we as Christians supposed to call God our Father who is in heaven? And yet that doesn't mean that we're deity, does it? No, and exactly. We call God our Father. Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Luke chapter 11, verse 2. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. But Jesus never said our Father. When he spoke about God or to God, he always said, My Father. There's a tremendous difference there. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, on that Sunday morning, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And he gave her some very direct orders. He said to Mary Magdalene uh, in John chapter 20, verse 17, Go to my brethren and tell them that I am going to my God and their God and my father and their father. Go to my brethren, tell them that I am going to my father and their father, my God and their God. He made a separation there. Not that it's a different God, but that there is a difference of relationship. Understand, Jesus called them his brethren, but he did not say our God. Go to my brothers. One would expect, I'm going to our God. No, he made a separation His relationship to the disciples as an offspring of Mary, as being man, was one thing. But his relationship to God in being God was another thing entirely as compared to the relationship the disciples had with God. If you're not sure about this, I just want you to listen to how those who understood what Jesus would be saying in the first century, those who had the right context and the understanding of the declaration would hear the words of Jesus. Turn to John chapter 5. Keep your finger here because we'll be right back. But go to John 5. John chapter 5, we have the story of Jesus healing the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. When we go to Israel in December as a church, those of you that are going with us, 90-some people, will go to the pool of Bethesda. We'll see where this took place. But immediately after doing so, we pick it up in verse 15. It says that the man, that is a man who was healed, John 5, 15, went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered them saying, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now you and I read that and we say, okay, no big deal, cool. Your father and your work, no big deal. But look how the Jews who understood the context, who understood the meaning of the words respond in verse 18. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When Jesus said, my father, the Jews sought to take his life. They saw his blasphemy. They realized that he was making himself equal with God because in the context, the Jews never said my father. They would say our father. But to say my father was too bold. It was too bold of a declaration. In fact, we see very clearly here that it was a declaration of deity. Jesus said it very clearly in John chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and the father are one. Literally, it means one essence or a unity. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one, one essence and one unity. A clear declaration of his own deity along the same lines and same reasoning that Paul is asserting his deity. Now today, when you share Jesus Christ with people out on the street or at work or wherever you are, you will hear people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed that in the New Testament. There could not be a more ignorant or arrogant statement in all the earth. Ignorant because he claims explicitly in the scriptures to be the one true God. Arrogant because they're placing their opinion above the word of God. And so we see how Paul deals with this right at the beginning, asserting the deity of Jesus Christ. Go back now to Colossians. Switching gears a little bit, we read in verse 3 that Paul writes, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes, we. Really interesting. He's with Timothy, we know that. Paul is the apostle who's credited with the writing of the letter. He's really the one that wrote it, or more proper to say, isn't it, that Paul penned the letter and the Holy Spirit authored it? But I love how Paul includes little Timmy. Little Timmy, who was his disciple, his protege, his little guy, his little sidekick, uh, the one that he would put in charge of other churches, the one that he raised up, the one that he discipled, little Timmy. He said, we give thanks. He includes him in that statement. And in that, in my mind, is a beautiful picture of how the church ought to function. Listen to me. Christianity is meant to be lived out in relationship. And ministry is meant to be worked out in partnership. We give thanks, Paul says, expressing a sense of partnership between him and Timothy. Your Christianity is designed by God to be lived out in relationship. Ministry is designed by God to be worked out through partnership. Frequently in the life of the church, in fact, I think every single week, uh, I'll encounter someone in the store the other day surfing or, or, or just anywhere and uh, they'll say something like, hey man, uh, your new sanctuary is cool or uh, you guys are doing a good job in this area or wow, you guys uh, have a problem here and understand that I immediately seek to correct them. It's not you guys, it's we. I tell them every time, no, our new sanctuary is pretty cool. No, we are doing an okay job in this area. Or, hey man, we have a problem. 
You see, it's not the staff and then you guys or deacons and you guys or elders and you guys. It is the body of Jesus Christ. We together in partnership to accomplish ministry. Anything less than that is unbiblical. We're called the body of Christ. We're to be knit together in the unity and the bond of love. And we're to be working together toward the glory of God. And so we've got to get rid of the um, you and me language. It's just like a marriage. When we counsel young couples who are about to get married, we tell them, hey, um, me and I and you, that language is gone. It's now us and we and ours. That is the language of marriage. That is to be the language of the church and the language of ministry. It's not I have a problem, we have a problem. It's not I'm doing a good job, we're doing a good job. Amen? Ministry is to be worked out through partnership. That does not eliminate roles. doesn't mean we all have the same roles. Nor does it eliminate authority. Paul was obviously in authority over Timothy. But there's the idea of working together. Also, he says, we give thanks to God. I want you to notice that thankfulness is a strong theme in the book of Colossians. In fact, we see it mentioned in every single chapter. Here in verse 3, chapter 1, he says, we give thanks. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he says it again. He says, we are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. We see it in chapter 2, verse 7, where he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We see in chapter 3, verse 15. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him and God the Father. And in the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. There is a strong and wonderful theme in this book of thankfulness. And that becomes all the more potent when we realize that Paul is writing from prison. Not from prison in the sense that he had committed a crime and he deserved to go to prison and now he's sort of remorseful and repentant and oh, I'm so thankful for God's mercy and I've been such a bad guy and not in that sense. I got a letter like that this week. Uh, Someone in prison down in Southern California heard uh, one of our messages on the radio and sent a letter to the church this week and he had that attitude Uh, and that's good. But you see, Paul was in prison for righteousness Paul was in prison for the preaching of the gospel. He was in prison wrongly. And if anybody could have said, oh, it's unfair. It's not fair. I'm just trying to preach the gospel. I'm just obeying God. And here I am in prison in Rome. And it's just not fair. And I'm bummed out, Colossians. Could have been him. But we never see that heart or that attitude come out. We see an attitude of gratitude in Paul. And that is the first mark of a powerful church is that it is thankful to God for who he is and what he has done. Write that down. It is not only the mark of a powerful church, it is the mark of a powerful Christian. That he has an attitude of gratitude. And I'll say that that attitude of gratitude ought to increase with maturity, with doctrinal understanding. The more you study the Bible and the more you understand the Bible, the more gratitude ought to well up in you. 
I've been studying theology every week of my life for the last 10 years. And I am more in awe of the grace of God today than I've ever been. I am more grateful for His mercy in my life. You see, when we get into the Word, we see who God is and who we are. And we see that Jesus Christ bridged that gap. And there's just this attitude of thankfulness that ought to overwhelm us. If you're lacking in that, you need to read the Bible. If you're one of these Christians that's lacking joy, and just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed out, and this, and that, and the other. Hey, you need to read the Bible. It will correct your attitude, and it will heal your heart, and you will begin to rejoice, which is biblical. Jesus said, my joy I give to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but my peace. And so the Christian ought to have a general attitude of thankfulness, and that's a healthy Christian in a powerful church. And that attitude of gratitude will manifest itself in selflessness. An attitude of gratitude will manifest itself in selflessness. Notice that Paul was thankful for what God was doing in them. It wasn't, he wasn't thankful for his own gig and his own stuff going on. He was thankful because God was doing great things in their lives. He was sitting in prison. But he was rejoicing over what God was doing in them presently and had done in them. And so the point is, we ought to be thankful for what God does in other people's lives. Oh, this is so important for healthy Christianity. We ought to be thankful when others are forgiven, when others are set free, when others are empowered, when others are gifted, when others are used by God or exalted by God or blessed by God or graced by God. When others are receiving the blessings of the Lord, we ought to rejoice. Because the Bible says that we're all one body. We're the body of Christ and that we're knit together and we're all part of one another. And so if the other is being blessed, you're being blessed. If the other is being edified, you're being edified. You understand that? And so we rejoice with one another. Paul had that attitude and it was beautiful. And I just want to warn you guys, having experienced it in my own life, I will confess before you to be aware of jealousy especially spiritual jealousy. You hear that God is blessing someone richly. Oh, that's great. Never me. God is using someone. Oh, that's cool. Why doesn't God use me like that? If only God would use me in that way. Someone's getting married. Oh, that's good for you. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Be aware of that attitude. Listen to me, that attitude is earthly, fleshly, and demonic. But wisdom that comes from above is first peaceable and pure. Beware of that attitude. I've experienced it in my own life and had to repent of it. Not only was Paul thankful to God for what he was doing in, through, and for the church in Colossae, but Paul was invested with God in what God was doing for, in, and through the church in Colossae. Notice in the second part of verse 3, he says that we are praying always for you. Praying always for you. Paul was invested in what God was doing in those people because he was praying always for them. And that is the second mark of a powerful church or of a powerful and healthy Christian is that you are praying for others. Very basic idea here. Christianity is basically about two things, God and others. It's not about you. In fact, Jesus said, you want to follow me? You got to die, man. 
Jesus said, you want to follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, and come after me. Christianity is about God and others, and where they intersect is an intercessory prayer. Christianity is about God and others, and where they intersect is an intercessory prayer. When you begin to pray to God on behalf of others, and now you're a healthy part of that equation. Now you're being radically used by God in the lives of others. Quite frankly, until you do engage in praying for others, Christianity will be boring to you. God will see to it. Because he didn't design Christianity to be all about you. He designed Christianity so you could get over yourself and get into him and into others. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, considering others as more important than yourselves, it says in Philippians chapter 3. And as long as you're all focused in on your gig... Man, life is going to be drudgery. And Christianity is going to be boring because you're not going to experience the power of God. You experience the power of God when you step out to see others' lives changed. When you step out to see the kingdom of God expanding in the world around you. And that happens by praying for others. And there's a return that happens on that spiritual investment. Not praying for others is like having a big, huge wad of cash, putting it in a jar and burying it in the ground. You still got that wad of cash, but it just sits there. It hasn't gone to work. There's not going to be any return on it. But if you take it out of that jar and you begin to invest it and you see a return on it, now you've done something. It's the same with intercessory prayer or praying for others. Don't keep the resources in the jar. Let them out. Begin to pray for others and you see a return on kingdom investment. You see God doing things in the world around you. Every time the Bible talks about prayer, it's in the context of change. If you don't believe that prayer changes things, you do not have a biblical worldview. Prayer changes things. Isaiah chapter 38, Hezekiah was gonna die. Said, God, I don't wanna die. God extended his life 15 years. Prayer changes things, man. And what we ought to be doing is praying for others. It is the most healthy way because it gets us over ourselves. And it is also the most effective prayer. It says in James chapter 5, verse 16, the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And that uh, verse is given to us in the context of praying for other people. And so I, I just ask you to just partway through the message here, halfway through the message, take a little stock. How's your attitude of gratitude? Are you grumbling and complaining all the time, Christian? Or is there an attitude of gratitude? Rejoicing for what God is doing in others. And what are you praying for? Are you praying for others? Because that's when Christianity gets radical. That's when it gets exciting. That's when it gets fruitful. When was the last time you really dug into prayer for someone else? It's the most radical thing in the world. And by the way, please, don't, don't tell yourself you don't have enough time. The Apostle Paul went throughout the then known world, starting multiple churches, wrote most of the New Testament, and kept his day job. He was still making tents in the morning, traveling, doing missionary journeys, starting churches, and writing the New Testament in the midst of it. You have time to pray for others. God will see to it. It's your decision. There's a nuance regarding prayer that we learn in the original Greek language. Sometimes pastors will say, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, and uh, 
at least I hope, it's not just to sound smart, but it's because there's, God chose Greek and Hebrew for a reason. There's some nuances in those languages that we don't always get in English. And there's a nuance uh, in the prepositional phrase, for you. Praying always for you. It shows us the scope of Paul's prayer. That preposition, peri, or for, conveys the concept uh, of around, as in perimeter. Peri, peri, perimeter. It conveys the concept of around. And so literally, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he was praying around the Colossians, encircling them with his prayers. Surrounding them in prayers. I am praying around you always, surrounding you with intercession. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? Wouldn't you love to have someone who was always praying around you? That they were just encircling your life with intercession, asking God to do good things and to work things in your life. Wouldn't you love to have someone do that for you? Then do unto others as you wish they would do to you. Encircle someone in prayer. I challenge you this week, to take the next week and pray for someone else three times a day. Tell me what your life is like seven days from now. I guarantee you, you will experience life change if you just begin to intercede on behalf of others, encircling them in prayer. Not only will your life change, their life will change. Invest in the kingdom of God. Be responsible with that. Now look what prompted Paul's uh, prayer of thanksgiving. Verse 4. We've been praying for you always, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul says, we've been giving thanks to God and we've been praying for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all the saints that you have because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And faith in God and love for God's people always go hand in hand. Faith in God and love for God's people always go hand in hand. If there is a disconnect there, then there is something wrong in your Christianity. Something you need to get together there. As we grow in faith in Him, we ought to grow in love for one another. And the reason that this church was known for their faith and for their love was because they understood that there was a hope laid up for them in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. It is the reoccurring trilogy throughout the New Testament that Paul speaks of. Faith is the soul looking upward toward God. Love looks outward toward others, and hope looks forward to the future. Faith rests on the past work of Christ. Love works in the present, and hope anticipates the future. And all three of these, write them down, are the marks of a strong church or of an individual Christian. Faith, love, and hope. And the church in Colossians was known to Paul for their faith and their love. Now listen, reality, church, family. We're going to be known for something. We're going to be known for something. Other churches will hear uh, about our church, uh, other people, non-Christians. I'm not too concerned about what non-Christians think about the church, really. In fact, not at all. I I get very concerned when uh, the world is too friendly with the church. I think it means that the church isn't being faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. Because if we're being faithful to the message of Jesus Christ, the world who has rejected it is offended by the message. Hopefully not by the messenger, but by the message. And so I'm not concerned about what the world thinks. But when other Christians hear about reality, what do they hear? It ought to be our prayer that they hear about our love for all the saints. 
well, I don't know. Yeah, they've got maybe some different doctrine than us. And gosh, they raise their hands a little bit more and they turn the lights out, but they sure are loving. That ought to be the report, that they love one another and they love the brethren, that there is a genuine love and concern and care. That ought to be what we are known for. We'll speak more about that in a minute. But concerning faith, uh, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when you come to God to church, you've got to come with faith. Lord, I believe you're going to meet us. I believe you're going to speak to us. And I believe you're going to work a work of transformation in us. And I'm going to receive it. When you commune with him in your private life in the morning or whenever you have your quiet time, come with faith. Lord, this is your living and active word. Speak to me. Move in my life. Transform me. Heal me. Do things. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But concerning hope, it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. In other words, when you realize the hope that we have now, uh, hope defined within Christianity is not the same as hope defined in the world. Hope defined in the world is, oh, I hope he asks me to marry him. I don't know why I'm on a marriage thing today. Oh, the marriage conference. Um, oh, I, I, I hope he calls me back or something like that. That's that hope of ambiguity. Hope, biblically speaking, is being positive of what is laid up for us in the future. We hope in the sense that we're looking forward to it. We expect it. We know it and it affects our lives today. And the Bible declares in Romans 5.5 5, that hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. In other words, if you set your mind on the things above where Christ is, if you endeavor to have an eternal perspective, if you study the word of God and see the reality of the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed in this lifetime or in the one to come. Hope in God does not disappoint. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hope does not disappoint, but love is the greatest of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, Paul writes, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. In fact, he says in that chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that we can have every spiritual gift happening. We can have all wisdom and knowledge. We can give our money to the poor and our bodies to be burned for the sake of the gospel and it is absolutely meaningless if we don't have love. We just become noisy gongs and clanging cymbals and it's vanity and striving after the wind. It is worthless if we don't have love. Now, if you're anything like me, well, if you're anything like me, number one, you're hard to love. And number two, it's hard for you to love people. It doesn't come natural for me to be about other people. And the natural man that I am, the natural Brit Merrick, the unredeemed Brit Merrick, I don't really care too much about you. I'm being honest. But I'm not a natural man anymore. I've been born again. I've been born again. And so, listen, the Holy Spirit of God is the one that works in you to love people. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, and there are many, right? One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to pour the love of the Father into your hearts. But you've got to get yourself in the place where you can receive it. 
That means you've got to get yourself quiet before God, alone with God, communing with God, going, Lord, here's my corazón. Pour your love into it. Here's my heart. Lord, I need more love. I'm lacking in love. I'm so arrogant. I'm so selfish. I'm so self-absorbed. I'm so mean and vindictive. Lord, pour your love into my heart. And when we do that, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to go, okay, and pour the love of the Father into our heart. In fact, in verse 8 of Colossians 1, it says that Epaphras also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Christian love is love that is in the Spirit. Spirit being capital S. Agape N and pneumati in the Greek. Love in the Spirit. Capital S. Love in the Holy Spirit. This is the only verse in the entire book of Colossians where the Holy Spirit is mentioned and it is in connection with love because there is a connection between Christian love, the love for the brethren, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm telling you, if you're lacking love for the people around you, you need to get alone with the Spirit of God. The Bible, the Holy Spirit, and a pencil. And say, God, speak to me. Move in my life. Begin to confess and repent before him of slander, backbiting, malice, a judgmental attitude, arrogance, mean-spiritedness, These are all things I have to repent of. That's why I can enumerate them so easily. I'm not kidding. Begin to repent of those things. Ask God to pour his love through you. God's always going to answer that prayer. Sometimes you just got to get out of the way so they can flow forth. God's always going to answer that prayer. In fact, God wants to teach us how to love one another. Turn to the book just behind Colossians. It's 1 Thessalonians. It's also Paul writing, but this time to the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter four. Verses nine and ten. Paul says in First Thessalonians four nine. Now as to the love of the brethren, <clears throat> just what we're talking about. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God is the one who teaches us to love one another. I could preach until I'm blue in the face and until you are sore from sitting there, but God is the one that's got to teach us to love one another. So you've got to get alone with God. You've got to have quiet times, just you and him. And then it says in verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, that's the region where Thessalonica was, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Oh, I love Paul here. He says, you're doing a good job at loving people, but you can do better, Thessalonians. I love it. You've got no reason for anyone to teach you about love. God is already teaching you guys, but I'm urging you to love a little more. It's like what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not forsake meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Let us consider or think about how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now, what does that word spur sound like? Well, just like it sounds like a spur, like you'd spur a horse, right? You get on a horse and you wham, kick it in the side and it goes. Literally in the Greek, it means to provoke or to irritate. What? Let us consider how we may irritate one another toward love and good deeds in a godly brotherly sense. But it's called accountability. 
again we see how strong the idea is that Christianity is to be lived out in relationship. Let us get in one another's faces and push each other toward love and good deeds. Come on, dude, don't have that attitude. Forgive them. Get over it. Let God heal you. Just love them. Hey, just do it. Extend that toward them. Come on, go. Let us consider how we may spur one another, provoke one another, irritate one another toward love and good deeds. That's what Paul's doing here. Hey, Thessalonians, you guys are doing a good job. I don't have to write to you about love. God's already teaching you how to love. But I will say this, love a little more. If you have pride, you're like, duh, duh, Paul, I'm totally loving already. (laughs) If you're humble, you say, yeah, I I could love more. Lord, teach me to love more. Holy Spirit, work in my life in such a way that that fruit of love would come out. Because love is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That is to say, abiding in the Spirit of God yields love in your life. Now, Peter tells us how to love one another. Turn to Peter. It's back further in your Bible. It's after the book of Hebrews, after James, and before 1 John. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter writes, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Whoa, what a meaty half a sentence. He says to these churches in Asia, Since you have in obedience to the truth, in obedience to the word of God, purified your souls, repented of things that need to be repented of, gotten right before God for a sincere, or literally in the Greek, unhypocritical love of the brethren. Wow. Fervently love one another from the heart. Since you've purified your souls, since you've gotten right with God, to love one another sincerely, then go ahead and fervently love one another, the Bible says here fervently love one another. That word in the Greek is very interesting. It's an adverb, fervently. But in the Greek language, it comes from a verb, which means to stretch forth. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus was in the synagogue and he was going to heal the man with a withered hand? And he said to the man, he said, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, yeah. yeah. And Jesus says, okay, stretch forth your hand. Now understand, the man had a withered hand and he had never stretched forth his hand in his whole life. And at that moment, he could have said, Jesus, easy for you to say. I've never stretched out my hand. I don't know how to stretch forth my hand. I don't even know if I want to. I've always been this way. I'm kind of comfortable this way. I don't know anything else. I'm not sure about stretching it out. Jesus said, stretch forth your hand. And in obedience to the stretching forth, there was healing. When he went to exercise faith in what Jesus said and went ahead and did it, he was healed. Not a moment before, not a moment later. And so the verb fervently, the adverb, excuse me, fervently, comes from the verb that means to stretch forth there. The idea being that Christians are to love each other in a way that we reach out to one another, that we stretch out in love, that we are stretched in our love for one another. 
See, too many Christians are like this. No, man. You know what? I got my own gig. I got my own problem. I got my own deal. And besides, if I stretch myself out in love, somebody might find out what's really happening in here. Welcome to Christianity. You can go ahead and put walls up if you want, but Satan will help you to build those walls because they will keep you from the blessings of God. You want to build walls in your life with regards to other Christian brothers? Go ahead and do it. But Satan will be your helper and it will keep you from the things that God has for you. But if you want to stretch yourself in love, God will tear down those walls. God will stretch your heart. will stretch the very core of who you are. And you'll experience blessings in your life. I'm preaching to myself, brothers and sisters. We are called to love one another fervently in a stretching manner. I want to remind you that the Bible also says that love covers a multitude of sins. And here's a real heart check. In a, in a church this size, there's going to be a lot of sin. We're going to sin against each other a whole bunch. If we really develop relationships, we're going to sin against each other. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me at times. But what we need to do is let love cover a multitude of sins. What does it mean to cover? Here's my handkerchief that you guys all know. It smells horrible. <laughs> Look, here's my Bible that you see every week. The handkerchief is covering the Bible. What does that mean? Look at it. It means you don't see the Bible anymore. You can't get to it. You don't see it. You don't take it into consideration. It's gone. Let love cover a multitude of sins. We are going to offend each other. We're going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt each other. Let love cover a multitude of sins in a sense that you just don't see it anymore. It's gone. It's under the blood. It's under the love. It's dealt with. If you don't do that, Satan will take advantage of you. According to Ephesians chapter 4, we let the sun go down on our anger. It's an opportunity for the enemy. If you don't let love cover a multitude of sins, Satan will take advantage of you. Again, I speak from experience. It's a horrible place to be. Get over yourself. Forgive that person. Let love cover it. Jesus said it this way. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And the world will recognize my disciples by this, that they love one another. The reason that we're able to do such things, to let love cover a multitude of sin, to have love for one another, and to have great faith is because of the hope that is laid up for us. Look here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What an unbelievable passage. It says that we have an inheritance and a promise in heaven that is undefiled and imperishable and will not fade away. When it says back in our text of Colossians chapter 4 that they had this love and this faith because of the hope laid up for them, that verb laid up speaks of preservation without the possibility of loss. 
In other words, God has laid up such wonderful things for you in heaven, and the hope is that they are absolutely sure that they will not be revoked, they will not be removed, they are undefiled, imperishable, reserved for you by God, and you are protected by the power of God. In other words, because of these wonderful promises that are absolutely positive for me in heaven, I'm going to have faith in God, and I'm going to have grace with people. Because of the reality of heaven in my life, I'm going to have faith in God and I'm going to have grace with people. I'm going to serve Jesus and I'm going to love his children. Amen? Amen. Turn back to Colossians as we finish. Very quickly, last couple verses. It says in verse 6, speaking of the gospel... The gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Amen. The gospel is going forth, it will not return void. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. There's a very important theological idea there. And that is that we are to live daily in the reality of the gospel. That the gospel bears fruit in our lives every day. That the gospel is not a one-time gig that I'm saved and now I'm done with the gospel. But the gospel is daily good news. That just as we are saved by grace, we are to walk in grace. We are saved by grace through faith and we are to walk in grace through faith. The righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight, it says three times in the New Testament. And so in the same way that we are saved, by grace, unmerited favor, the gift of God, receiving it through faith, we're to walk daily in that way. And remember as you walk in your daily life that the gospel is a good news. The gospel is the good news. That's what it means. So many times, oh, I'm going to share the gospel with them and he shared the gospel. And man, as a church here, as members of this church, as you who are invested here, when I begin to preach the gospel and you know there's unbelievers here, you ought to go, oh, the good news, they're going to get the good news. And then you ought to start interceding. Oh, Lord, open their heart. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, save them. Reveal their sin. Reveal the Savior. Yes, good news, good news, good news. That's how a biblical Christian ought to react to the gospel. It's good news. And it ought to be good news in your day every single life because you are saved by grace and you have a standing before God in grace. I was out surfing at the islands yesterday on my boat, my dad's boat, I don't own it. And um, I was with some friends and I was sitting on the boat, my friends were all surfing and I was just kind of praying and worshiping and spending some time with the Lord and another boat pulled up and there's another boat over there and the guy on this boat recognized the guy on that boat. And he said to him, hey, man, what's going on? The guy said, hey, bro, what's happening? Waves are pretty good. And the guy said, what's new? And the guy goes, nothing. All right, man, I'll see you in the water. And it, all of a sudden, I don't know why, but I just thought about, that's a funny question. Everybody always asks each other, what's new? And immediately, the Lord spoke to me and said, my mercy every morning. I just went, yeah, yes. Ask me what's new. Ask me what's new. Ask me. As a Christian, you could never say, oh, nothing again. You can never say that. Hey, man, what's new? God's mercy today. Hey, man, what's new? Ah, God's mercy. Every day when you wake up, God goes, here's mercy. And then when you stand up, he goes, okay, you're standing. You're standing before me is in grace. Every day when you wake up, God has mercy and grace brand new for you. The gospel is a daily walk. And now we end. Verse 7. 
Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. He's the one who started the church in Colossae. And Paul here calls Epaphras a faithful servant of Christ. Lord, how I want to be called that at the last day. When Jesus comes from the church, for the church, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That the Lord would say that to us. And then it says, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Epaphras was an informer of good things. He spoke well of the Colossians behind his back. I love that. What a beautiful, simple picture of Christianity that this guy, Epaphras, spoke well of this church behind their back. And so it ought to be for Christians. How quick we are to talk behind each other's back. I know. But Epaphras spoke well of his brothers in Colossae behind their back. And so we see a powerful church here. We see a church where thanksgiving was abounding. We see praying for others through Paul. We see faith, hope, and love abounding. We see the daily walk in the gospel. And we see this guy Epaphras gossiping about good news. Lord, help us to be powerful biblical Christians and a powerful biblical church. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. It's so alive. It's so active. And Lord, as we begin to worship you and wait on you for a few minutes, I ask that you pierce our hearts and just bring us to a place of just repenting for stuff. I, I, I know that we're all in the same boat here. So bring us to a place of repenting and then heal our hearts. Thank you that you heal us when we repent. You forgive us. And then Lord, would you teach us to love? God, would you let this church be marked by love? Forgive us for where we fail. We know we're a work in progress, but we want to progress. And so Holy Spirit, as we worship, would you pour the love of the Father into our hearts? Would you pour the love of the Maker? Best as we know how now, we open up our hearts. We say, pour in that love. Increase our faith. Thank you for the hope and the inheritance we have. Teach us, Holy Spirit, in this time.